Revelation, and we come to Jeremiah chapter 17 tonight. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, try to cover a little more ground on Sunday nights than Sunday mornings, and a Bible will be important. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. While we're continuing to get to our place, I want to announce, as we did this morning, for those of you who come to the evening service, um, we are planning a uh, trip to uh, Israel next year from April 23rd to May 6th. It'll be a joint trip with Calvary Chapel of Oakdale, and uh, so uh, be aware of those dates. We should have brochures complete with all of the information and pricing and so forth available to you in the next uh, week or so. Uh, that's our hope. We'll be announcing the uh, next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be announcing that to you as soon as we uh, get it. When we come to Jeremiah, again, I think my mind goes to the fact that, uh, as it did last week, where we do recognize the tremendous repetition of the book of Jeremiah. Now, I never, uh, I never assume that, uh, that uh, any of that is unnecessary related to the Word of God. Uh, the message of repentance, not to a pagan world, not to an unsaved world, but to the children of uh, Judah, God's people, to repent of their sin and their idolatry and the strength with which it's presented, um, the over and over and over again, the repetitiveness of it uh, is uh, obviously very, very important um, because even with all of that, they wouldn't ultimately turn and they would end up in judgment. But I think that one of the things that happens for us today so that as Christians we don't uh, push this message of Jeremiah uh, too far away from ourselves where we look at ourselves and say, well, I'm no worshiper of Baal or Molech or I'm not an idolater. One of the things that we have to be careful of is to realize that idolatry is the worship of any created thing. There is God and there is everything else. And to worship anything else in my life other than God with all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, uh, that makes that thing an idol. And just because we don't fashion uh, physical images uh, that represent these things that capture our hearts and our kind of sophisticated age doesn't mean that idolatry can't reign uh, very strong within our hearts, and we're convinced that it doesn't simply because we don't have a statue associated with it. And so the idolatry is the worship of anything in our lives other than the Lord. The Lord is to be our master passion, the great passion uh, in our life. And, and so often one of the great ways to look and say, what is the master passion of my life? Uh, look at where our discretionary time goes. Uh, look at where our money goes. Uh, look where our thoughts are constantly finding themselves set upon, and pretty soon we begin to realize this is the most important thing in my life. And if that uh, something isn't the, the Lord, then the book has something uh, to speak to us. So it is this, uh, it, it is this master passion, uh, where does my time, where does my resources, where is my interest, where is the activity of my mind, always identifies our master passion and identifies an idol if it set itself up within our life. We can always with certainty 
identify that something has become an idol in our life, if it snaps its finger and calls me to attention and then tempts me to obey its voice, and to obey that voice is to go contrary to God's Word, and I find myself continually obeying the voice of that something or that someone. That is something that now has a greater place in my life than the voice of God and the presence of God, and it should be recognized as an idol. And then we want the book of Jeremiah to be effective in uh, pruning those things away from our life, ex exposing them and, and removing them uh, from our lives. So God begin, continues to speak through Jeremiah and, and to Jeremiah about uh, the backslidden condition of the southern kingdom of Judah as we pick things up in chapter 17. God declares the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron with the point of a diamond that is engraved, and it's written on the tablet of their uh, hearts and on the horns of your altars. Very, very uh, famous passage and an important one. Imagine an instrument in which to inscribe something. He's talking about a writing instrument that is made of iron with a tip of a diamond. I mean, that's, that's something that is, you know, uh, made for establishing something permanent within, uh, within our lives. And so the sin that they're engaged in is no longer, as he talks about their heart, their sin that they've engaged in is no longer sin that simply marks the exterior uh, of their life and of their actions. Their sin has now come to be a part of them. It's like a tattoo. Today, you know, we can remove tattoos, and it's a big business these days, by the way. Uh, I guess, well, it just is. I'm not going to go there because I'm not going to offend people uh, unnecessarily. So, okay. So, um, but in those days, to get a tattoo on your heart or whatever, that was permanent. And so, the sin that they're engaged in is they've given such a free reign to it in their lives that now it's dominating their heart. It's like a tattoo on their heart. It's become their identity. It's funny how sin works. James talks about it. You know, when we allow an area of sin into our life, or we uh, yield ourselves to an area of temptation where God says no to that, uh, almost always we bring it into our life with the idea that I can control this. I can handle this. They can't handle this, but I'm a different kind of Christian. I can handle this. And there's the idea that we'll always kind of keep it uh, in a controllable place in our life, and that we'll always be able to manage it. It'll always be on the periphery of our life. It'll be uh, something that entertains us. It amuses us. It brings us a little bit of pleasure, but it'll never capture my heart. It'll never capture my life. And James tells us that sin in our life uh, will never uh, cease its march in our life until it has captured our heart. 
until it has become the master passion of our life and it dominates our life. And so they began fiddling with sin, thinking we can do this one foot in the world, one foot in the church or Christianity or the Bible or whatever, and we can manage it. And now they find further down the road that, no, this sin has, is not something that they're controlling. This sin has now become their identity. It is something that dominates now uh, their heart. And that's the danger of sin. Uh, that's what it's wanting to do in all of our lives. The old saying, the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Reckon the old man dead. These are very, very strong terms in terms of dealing with the sin nature and dealing with temptation. And it's not like God doesn't know us and He doesn't know how uh, easily we uh, uh, seduce ourselves or deceive ourselves and then end up becoming a kind of a trophy of the devil. And so uh, here it is, their sin engraved in such a deep way on the tablet of their heart, on the horns of your altars. These sins were, uh, you know, inscribed on these pagan altars and the horns of those altars that they worshipped at. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Now this is a very, very important passage and verse as well. So here you have uh, the sin of the parents, the sin of the adults within the culture of Judah now becoming engraved. It goes off of the parents' hearts, the engraving upon the parents' heart, and it becomes engraved into the childhood experiences and memories of their children one of the worst things, one of the most destructive things that can happen in a child's life is to be raised in a home that is considered outwardly Christian, but behind the scenes, behind closed doors, uh, there is the open worship of other things. Uh, there is hypocrisy. There is an acting and the children see it. They see my parents are one place, one thing at church, and they are something entirely different at home. There's nothing that uh, so uh, sours a child's heart, nothing that they recognize more quickly than that kind of thing. And so here are uh, the parents. They're going on uh, the Sabbath. They're going to the temple, and they're worshiping every Saturday and doing all of this, but then through the week, they're going to all of these groves. They've got these idols set up in their house. The kids are watching it. The kids are a part of it. Even they're drawn into it, and they're being raised in this environment uh, of hypocrisy. And when children see, children are smart. I mean, you know the questions they come up with at five years old. Uh, even from the Bible, and they, they even catch me where I say, I'll have to talk to the pastor about that and find out uh, the answer to it. But they're, they're learning, they're absorbing, their eyes are big, their minds are, uh, are big. And if they look at our lives and they say uh, that if, if this thing of God, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, worshiping Him if this is just something that is a game on one day of the week and the rest of the week it's all of the rest of this, 
then why in the world if my, uh, the significant adults in my life, if my parents in my life aren't taking this seriously, then why in the world would I ever take it seriously as well? And so they throw it off, and it does great damage to uh, a young person. A childhood is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And uh, okay, great. A firm grasp on the obvious again, right? But it is. It's a very, very formative age. It will be a significant and a dominant influence upon us for the rest of our lives. And so that's why the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, New Testament, raise up a child in the things of the Lord and and when he's or Old Testament, when he's old, he will not uh, he, he will not depart from it. Uh, we're to train our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There's a New Testament passage uh, for us. That opportunity is a finite opportunity to lay a foundation in our children's lives that God promises that He will never let that be wasted. Uh, sometimes we look at our children, they grow up, they throw all of it away, and it looks like nothing for months, for years, for decades. But we don't know what the final say is going to be related to that. All we can do is give God our obedience in raising our children in the things of the Lord the best way that we can. But we never want them to see deliberate, protracted hypocrisy in our lives. I do want to say to young people in the room here tonight, when I talk about hypocrisy, I'm not talking about imperfection. Uh, all parents are imperfect. A little amen wouldn't be bad right in uh, there. Uh, that's just the way that we think, oh, my parents were the only one that were imperfect. No, they are. And so often people in the world, when they think about hypocrisy in Christians, because there's a certain kind of person that always looks at Christians with the idea of finding something wrong in their life and then is an excuse to reject Christianity. So that anytime they see us make a mistake or say something that we shouldn't or uh, fail in some way, ah, they're just a hypocrite. That's not at all what the Bible says about hypocrisy. That's sin. Uh, that is something that uh, uh, far short of hypocrisy. That's something where even those of us who try our very best to uh, do what God wants us to do fail on a, a daily basis. That's why a part of the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray involves a request for the forgiveness of sins. We are each of us less than perfect, less than Christ-like every day of our life. But hypocrisy is deliberate. Hypocrisy is something that is a decision. This is settled now, and it spoils and it ruins uh, so many children. It doesn't mean that they're past uh, becoming Christians and taking Christianity and the God of the Bible seriously later in their life, but it certainly uh, puts them in, a, in a, a bad place. Better to be, almost better to be raised in an environment where you're not exposed to it at all. And it is really terrible to watch today the, just the sheer number of children uh, who are permanently uh, damaged by the open uh, sin of parents, their uh, love for their sin, uh, that is greater than God and even greater than their concern for the welfare uh, of their children. And the passage really speaks to us as parents tonight uh, not to have 
anything within the privacy of our life and the home. Yes, it's a place to let our hair down, to love one another and to care about one another and all of that, but there shouldn't be hypocrisy. And the passage is intended to uh, prune that away from our lives if it, if it exists uh, in, uh, in any way. The, on my mountain, he goes on in verse 3 and says, on my mountain in the field, as he's talking about uh, their idolatry, not only uh, their altars and their wooden images and the groves and the high places that they were worshiping in, but also on my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and all your high places of sin within all your borders, and you even yourself shall let go of your heritage, uh, that is the land of Israel, which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land, uh, uh, in the land which you do not know, speaking of their Babylonian captivity coming up, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which uh, shall burn for uh, ever. And so he uh, speaks to them uh, uh, here and uh, tells them that, well, if, they, if they're not going to turn away from their idolatry, then God will simply remove them from the land and uh, remove the idolatry from the land in their captivity. And then the Lord declares in the light of this, thus says the Lord, cursed, and this uh, reminds us of Psalm 1, cursed is the man uh, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. What was happening in Judah was there was a lot of political intrigue going on in addition to uh, their sin. So they decide, no, we're not going to repent of our sin. We're not going to turn to God. We're not going to let Him be our defense and look after us in uh, the, the dangerous world that we're living in today. Uh, what we're going to do is hold on to our sin. We recognize that we're going to have to kind of manipulate the situation in order to do that because he keeps talking about Babylon, and Babylon uh, could whoop us pretty easily. So they began to try and enter into treaties with the nations that surrounded them, most specifically with Egypt. And so rather than trust God, they began these manipulations, and God is telling them, uh, cursed is the man who uh, trusts in another person as a means of, you know, withstanding uh, and staying in a condition of disobedience and withstanding uh, the chastening or the judgment of God. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places uh, in the wilderness in a salt land that is not inhabited. And so, if you ever plant something in a very arid area, this is Judah is in southern Israel, section of it very, very arid, and you see this plant that's out in kind of uh, the Judean wilderness, which gets very little rain, and the plant simply survives. It simply uh, struggles to make it from one season uh, to the next, and that's what Judah was when God wanted to become, uh, wanted them to experience something entirely different, uh, but uh, their sin was 
was keeping them from it. Here's what God desired to do. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Again, talking about a very uh, arid part of the world. Water is life everywhere, but especially there. A tree that's planted by water, uh, a river has an unlimited source. To walk close to the Lord, to obey God, is to be uh, tapped into an unlimited uh, supply, uh, spiritual supply within our lives, which spreads out its roots by the river. It will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf shall be green. And in other words, it will prosper and will not be anxious in the year of drought, and nor will cease from uh, yielding fruit. And so here is this uh, life that he wanted to lead them into, the life of blessing. Doesn't mean we'll all be uh, driving Rolls Royces, but we will, having food and raiment with this, will be content. God will uh, supply us. He will take care of us spiritually. We'll be rich no matter what's going on uh, in the world. There'll always be an abundance in our life, a spiritual abundance. There'll be the freedom of fear from the circumstances of life. Our lives will be uh, fruitful, the things that he is uh, uh, describing uh, here, and uh, a very, very uh, blessed uh, situation uh, that he longed to have uh, them uh, be, you know, as their portion, but their sin was keeping them uh, away from it. And then God, in the again, one of the most famous verses in the book of Jeremiah, uh, describes the human heart apart from God. The heart is deceitful. Uh, this, this means the heart is a liar. The heart is deceitful. And not only is it deceitful, but he goes on to say it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, but it is desperately wicked who can know it, the Lord asks. And so this is his assessment of our fallen hearts, uh, deceitful above all things. And the word deceitful means it lies. It lies and it lies and it lies and it lies and it lies to us. Our heart lies to us. Their hearts were lying to them in Judah. And what were some of the lies that obviously they were believing from their own heart? Well, it really doesn't matter. Uh, God doesn't care about obedience in the heart of His people. It doesn't matter. If it really did matter to Him, He'd have hammered us a long time ago. I mean, there's the Bible, you read it, that's where, you know, it's, God's got to say stuff like this or He wouldn't be God, but nobody takes this seriously. Nobody's going to try and obey this. Is it a standard in our life? Or, the, or that sin doesn't destroy, it doesn't ruin uh, our lives, it doesn't take us into bondage. That's a lie that comes from our hearts as well. Or I can live a life of hypocrisy, and not only does it fool everybody around me, but it also fools uh, God. And these are the kind of lies that our heart, our flesh will tell us in order to preserve and keep safe uh, the sin that, and the idolatry that wants to, again, uh, entrench itself in every one uh, of our lives. And so you look and you begin the day and you say, uh, uh, who is the biggest liar I'm going to uh, run into today? 
And sometimes we think the biggest liars we'll ever face in life are used car salesmen or uh, telephone solicitors or whatever. The biggest liar you and I will deal with in our lives, bar none, is ourselves. And the lies our hearts want to tell us in order to uh, protect uh, the sin within our lives that it's our flesh so dearly loves and is willing to be destroyed in uh, giving itself uh, to that. I remember uh, there was a guy, uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Van Cleve. And uh, when I was a new Christian and uh, new and starting to try and teach the Bible and so forth, uh, he did a series on uh, teaching the Bible. I still consider it one of the very best things I've ever listened to. And he taught it at a school of, of the Bible or something down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. You can find it online. I would encourage everyone uh, that wants to teach the Bible uh, to listen to that. Outstanding instruction. And uh, uh, Dr. Van Cleve had, had kind of a, an interesting voice and uh, an interesting kind of cadence to the way that he would talk. And uh, for some reason, I remember it. I can't do John Wayne. I can't do Lawrence Welk. I can't do Ed Sullivan. But I can do Dr. Van Cleve. Uh, but he would always have these kind of homey illustrations, very easy to listen to, a delight, an absolute delight. And he would talk about, uh, he'd say, well, you know, sometimes… Uh, uh, sermons that I listen to are very much like a bridge they built in Washington State. Uh, partway through building it, they ran out of money and stopped building it. Well, there's a lot of sermons like that. They <laughs> don't go anywhere. This is the stuff you remember, you know. But he was, one time he was teaching in a, doing a series of meetings somewhere, and, and he was a conference speaker and so forth. And he was, this is way back, you know, 30s, 40s, and, you know, how Christianity was done was kind of different and all. There weren't 187,000 channels on the TV, and, you know, maybe four movies came out a year and that kind of a deal. So a church was an event, and when a speaker would come in and would be there for the week, people would come. And sometimes they would uh, preach for a night, and then they would say, uh, and tomorrow, here's what I'm going to uh, teach on. And uh, Dr. Van Cleve was in this little town, and he said, tomorrow I'm going to reveal the biggest liar in this city. He, and he starts laughing, and he said, everybody in the city came out uh, to the sermon to find out who was the biggest liar uh, there. And uh, what he ended up talking about was the tongue, the danger of the tongue. But he could have just as easily and just as biblically spoken about uh, the deceitfulness of the human heart. It is a liar, and it cannot believe, be believed. And not only is it a liar, does he tell us there, uh, deceitful above all things, but it is also desperately wicked. And the word desperately carries the idea 
of being incurable. It is diseased. It is uh, wounded. It loves sin, and it's unknown, unknowable by uh, man. There's an old saying, at the heart of every problem is the problem uh, of the heart. And always you go back, and there's a, something wrong in the heart related to, uh, to problems and finding out uh, what in the world is, is going on here. We look at the world that we live in. We see the condition that it's in, and people say, why? And, you know, it's just today I was reading a couple of posts about some kind of whatever that you don't really need to know, and then it's just the, it's the, the typical chorus. You know, things are getting so awful. Why is the world getting so awful? You know, it's people, and it's talking, and it's people's hearts desperately wicked and uh, deceitful above all things. And so it all goes back really uh, to the human heart. And concerning Judah here, is in, in terms of him, his talking about all of this, uh, their refusal to obey God, it revealed that. Uh, the, the, the degree of wickedness of their heart, the capacity of their heart uh, to deceive them, that somehow they could live in open opposition to God, yet claim to identify with Him, and that somehow all of this uh, was going to be okay. One of the most important things uh, in the light of how much our heart can convince us of uh, so many things, the protection against that, number one is a conscience, a God-given conscience, a intuitive sense of right and wrong that God has put inside of us as human beings. The second thing that protects us from completely being deceived by our own rationalizations and justifications from our heart is the Holy Spirit, and we're thankful for that. And then the third great thing is the Word of God. Talked about it this morning, the mirror of the Word of God. As we put it up in front of us each day and we read it, it speaks to us about what we really are, and it tells us things that no one else will ever tell us. You think you get the truth from your loved ones? I mean, come on, everybody's holding something back where they say, listen, that's just not worth the aggravation of bringing up. But God is faithful to speak to us exactly what we need to hear, and He's the only one that will do it. And, uh, and we won't even speak the truth to ourselves. And so the importance of the Holy Spirit, importance of conscience, the importance of, uh, of the, the Word of God. You know, sometimes you have people, they believe, lots of people do, that, you know, we're really uh, born into the world and uh, we're, all of us as human beings, we're innately good. And, uh, the, uh, but the Bible's estimation of it is uh, <laughs> no, uh, in a word. So, uh, and that, we, and so often we can even think as, as Christians sometimes that we are sinners because we sin. But the Bible teaches that, no, no, our problem is a lot worse than that, and it's even deeper than that. Uh, we sin because we're sinners. We are born sinners, every single one of us, born with a sin nature from Adam and Eve that is very highly attracted uh, to uh, sin. So we're not born uh, perfect, and then somehow along the course of our life, we learn how to be imperfect. Any of you that have ever raised children, you understand all about this. None of you had to sit and say, okay, now listen, we're going grocery shopping or we're going out to eat, and I want you to get right where we get to the cash register. 
This is where I want you just to throw the biggest, most embarrassing fit for me. I want you to fall on the ground and kick your feet in the air and scream and holler until your face is beat red. Did you ever have to teach your child that? No, they were born. That was Adam and Eve that taught them that from that sin nature uh, that came. We don't have to teach them that. That's the heart uh, that we are born with. David uh, wrote in Psalm 51 and said, Behold, I was born, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was a sinner before I was ever born. Uh, Paul wrote, writes significantly in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as, though, uh, one, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, and thus sin spread to all men because all have sinned. Well, someone might say, well, how can God hold us responsible for our sin uh, if we are born sinners? And the reason that He can hold us responsible for it is that He gives us, because of the introduction of his Son, a Savior, into human history by which we might be forgiven of our sins either in the Old Testament by faith looking ahead to this Savior or now in the New Testament looking back upon this Savior that we can be, in putting our faith in Him, receive a new nature by the Holy Spirit, by being born again in our lives, and a new nature, the Holy Spirit, uh, birthed by the Holy Spirit, comes into our life and this new nature loves God, loves to obey God's commandments even more than our flesh loves sin and loves to obey sin. And so to continue in sin, everyone is responsible for that because the opportunity to be saved and then have this dynamic occur within our lives, everlasting life on top of it, this is available to everyone and so not to walk in it, uh, we're responsible for that. And, and because the heart is this, as Jeremiah, as God exposes it and reveals it as he does through Jeremiah here, uh, some of the, probably the very worst advice that one person can ever give to another person is, honey, you just follow your heart. I mean, Never tell a person to follow uh, their heart. No telling where in the world they're going to be led in that. Much better to say, follow God and follow His uh, commandments. Listen, Solomon did the whole follow your heart thing for all of us, and it's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And he got to the end of the book, and he said, let us hear now the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. Not the following of our heart, but the following after God. God knows, as he says here, who knows the heart and, and, and so forth here. Uh, uh, who can know it? I, the Lord, verse 10, uh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God knows each of our hearts intimately, 
He knows it on a current basis, right up to date, and thus He is able to either chasten us or to uh, bless us accordingly. As a partridge that broods uh, uh, but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. So here you have a partridge bird uh, goes to a nest that is open and there's eggs in it, and the partridge plants itself upon the eggs and then brings those uh, chicks into the world, so to speak, and they hatch out. And they immediately recognize uh, that uh, this partridge is not our mother, and they immediately then leave the nest and they flee as a result of it. And God is saying the same thing is true of money that is gained uh, by sin, by taking advantage of people. It's, it's gained unrighteously. One day, all of that wealth wakes up and realizes that this wealth doesn't belong and shouldn't belong to the unrighteous. This wealth belongs to the righteous. And then the wealth then makes its uh, way in God's order of thing uh, to the righteous. So to gain money in this way is always uh, to lose it. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Uh, o Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you uh, shall be ashamed. In other words, God is saying He will make sure uh, that this is true uh, of the world and true of individuals uh, as well. Those who depart from me, uh, here's God's commentary on all of this, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So, you know, as a kid or whatever, you'd go to the beach, right? Or you go anywhere there's dirt and you get a stick and, you know, Alex loves whoever. Uh, and, and so the, you, you put it in the sand or whatever in a heart and the whole thing and the waves come up or take it away. Or if you do it even on the floor of a forest, uh, the wind comes along, the rain comes along, and anything that's written on the dirt, it, it has no future. It has no longevity. And so the Lord is talking about uh, the, the fact that those who depart from Him, uh, they'll, you know, all, uh, they'll be forgotten. It's, it's, there's, there's no longevity in, in that kind of a life, no significance to be found uh, in, uh, in that, that kind of life. It's, it's a fleeting thing. Heal me, uh, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Jeremiah uh, cries this out to the Lord, save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. And um, uh, so this is the kind of thing that's happening to uh, Jeremiah here. He's uh, in, in his ministry. It, it lasts, uh, covers a period of about 40 uh, years, and, uh, and he is getting continually mocked because there's this significant block of time that is occurring between the time that he's telling them judgment is going to come and then the actual judgment. So you think about it. He's saying judgment's going to come. The Babylonians, the Babylonians, you're going to get it. You should repent of your sin. If you don't repent of your sin and so forth. And year after year goes by. And so people think, this guy's a kook. This is never going uh, to happen. Peter talks about it in the New Testament related to us speaking about the coming uh, of the Lord, uh, that people think that because God tarries, He waits uh, 
uh, to come and rapture His church, that it's never going to happen rather than understanding it properly, that what it is is it speaks to the grace of God still allowing people to come into the kingdom of God before the rapture occurs. But there is something that happens there where um, this length of time that is between his speaking it and then it occurring, now they begin, I mean, at first they might go, oh no, what if he's right? Now they're convinced that he's not right and become so emboldened that now they're going to mock him for his message. Hey, Mr. Prophet, you know, uh, where's the word of the Lord now today? What do you got for us today? What are you going to say to us today? Lay it on us, you know, and this is the kind of thing that he's getting. And one of the most miserable things to experience, of course, in life is to be mocked by another person. How many of us like to be mocked by another person? Uh, that, that really is an unpleasant experience. And this is what he's getting a lot of at this point. And to be mocked by people, uh, especially this kind of person where they're unrighteous and it looks like they're getting away with murder and so forth, and, and then now they've got the, the boldness to mock you as a righteous person who's walking with the Lord, that's a pretty tough thing uh, to, to stomach, and it can really uh, tempt you then uh, to be silenced. And so Jeremiah is asking, heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall uh, be saved. You know, keep me. I'm going to stay committed to you in the midst of all of this mocking. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. He expresses his commitment to God, even though uh, virtually no one else is following God. God, I'm in. I'm with you, even though they're mocking me and making uh, fun of me. Nor have I desired the woeful day. Lord, you know that I haven't been uh, desirous. I've been preaching the message of judgment, but I haven't been eager for it to be poured out uh, upon them. You know what came out of my lips? I was right before uh, you. And so he uh, speaks here of his uh, commitment to the Lord. Better to be in obedience to God and in a right relationship with God and being mocked uh, than to be out of a right relationship with God, living in disobedience uh, with Him and not being mocked. And that's what Jeremiah is modeling for us here, and he knows it. Uh, Remember when Jesus in John chapter 6, Jesus is at a point in His ministry where He's just got done feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That's just the men. We don't know how many women and children. Big crowd. And so people start to uh, follow Him Uh, because, hey, uh, and remember when he fed everyone, they were glutted. In the ancient world, to be glutted like a Thanksgiving, no, no, not even one more, but no, take the plates away. That was such a luxury in the ancient world, and they experienced it. We can experience it anytime we got 20 bucks in our pocket. We can go buy uh, eight of those meals at McDonald's and supersize them and stuff them into our face and our stomach. And uh, listen, I'm not saying I wouldn't like to do it, but I'd probably go to Mr. T's and spend the 20 bucks and do it that way. But, uh, you know, that was a, a luxurious kind of feeling to be able to do that, and they had it. 
And then they started to follow Jesus out of the fact that, wow, you can get a free meal out of this. They weren't so much concerned about what he was saying spiritually. What they wanted was what they could get from him uh, materially, physically. And so he preaches this incredible sermon that starts to talk about, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, talking about partaking of his life and his example and following him into the life uh, that he lived and so forth. And the crowd then began to melt away. And as the crowd is melting away before Jesus, Jesus turns to the disciples who are standing there watching it. Jesus, we had all the momentum in the world on our side here, and then you had to go and preach that sermon. And now they're all leaving. I thought the whole idea was to get a big crowd. And, and so Jesus speaks that, and He turns and He says to them, again, in my mind, one of the most uh, greatest pictures of the vulnerability of Jesus, and really the vulnerability that God puts Himself in, in relationship to man, when He says, and will you leave me also? And they had the freedom to do it. And then Peter, in line with Jeremiah here in this passage, he says to Jesus, he said, where would we go? Which tells me he's thought about it. For you have the words of everlasting life. As hard as this life is, the mocking of it, the demands that you place upon us and so forth, I've looked around the world and there is no place else to go that compares with this. And Jeremiah felt the same thing, and I think we feel the same way too. It's like, walk away from this. Is this hard? This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, to be a Christian. This is not an easy thing. This is a hard thing but we have the Holy Spirit to do it. But I look around the world, and I look at it and go, what alternative is there? Not that I'm looking for one, uh, but there isn't an alternative uh, to it. I mean, I, when I became the Lord, came to know the Lord, it, I came to know the Lord, I had more stuff and more things and more symbols of success by American definition, than anyone that I knew in my family. It, it wasn't much, but it was a lot for our fam, my family. And yet I looked at all of it, and I said to myself, what do I do from this point on? All I can do is simply upgrade all of the things that I have. And if this hasn't brought satisfaction to my heart, then I know that the upgrades won't. And God hasn't made me to be able to live in life and live in this world without hope and without answers to the big questions in life. Why are we here? How did we get here? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? These are the things that I could never throw away by the grace of God uh, for anything that the world uh, could offer. And it's a good thing when that happens within our life. Jeremiah said, do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. God, you're going to take care of me when the judgment comes. Let them be ashamed to persecute me, uh, but do not let um, me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, uh, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and, bring, uh, and destroy them with double or with complete destruction. So here is Jeremiah. He says, listen, 
This is the mocking that they're doing related to me and, and uh, making fun of me in front of my face and behind my back and so forth. And uh, Lord, I leave it in your hands uh, to take care of it. And, uh, and by the way, I wouldn't mind now at this point if you hammered them. Uh, destroy them with uh, double destruction. So I, I could make a comment or two there, but I'll wait because uh, by the time he gets into chapter 18, where we are not going to get tonight, uh, he really goes off. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about it at that point. But you think about him. I mean, 40 years he's doing this. 40 years this is being done to him by people, and it was not an easy place. I look forward to seeing uh, Jeremiah one day. He has my utmost respect. And then Jeremiah delivers, as we close here tonight, uh, a message uh, to the southern kingdom of Judah related to uh, the Sabbath day and that they were to keep the Sabbath holy. And thus the Lord said to me, go and stand in the gate uh, of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which uh, they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem. So he said, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the gates of Jerusalem and I want you to stand there and I want you to deliver this message. Now, we read about gates and they really don't mean much to us except kind of the gate on the side of our house. But uh, gates in those days of a walled city, it was the only means with, in which to get to enter a city and then to depart from a city. And so it was the busiest place uh, within the city, so many people coming and going. And because you had so many people coming and going, people would slow down at those intersections, and it was a great place then to declare a message to them. So in your mind, 580, 680, uh, at rush hour, right? Just goes down to a crawl. You don't have anything to do, but just wait until the traffic makes its way through. Jeremiah has a great opportunity now to speak something to them that they will not be able to just rush through, but they'll have to listen to and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourself, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow, respect, reverence the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. So at this point in Judah, uh, they, nobody was respecting the Sabbath day. It was just one more day to make money like the other six days. When God, uh, and there, there's more to this than sometimes meets the eye, when God established uh, the law of the Sabbath with the children of Israel, uh, it, was, it was intended to uh, communicate two things to them, represent two things to them. And one of the things it was to represent uh, was uh, the importance of that day of rest, God created everything in six days in creation, and then He rested on the seventh day, uh, the Sabbath, the Saturday. He then called upon His people to be creative, to work for six days, but then to take the seventh day off. It's interesting, the people who study these kind of things in terms of efficiency related to our lives, and actually happiness and fulfillment in our lives as human beings, the greatest sense is felt 
when we work for six days and then have the seventh day off. Uh, this thing where you work for four and are off for three and this kind of thing, it doesn't have, uh, scientifically as they look at it, it doesn't have kind of the benefits that the six-in-one has. There's something uh, about it and what it does in us that is good. But the day of rest, that seventh day, was an Old Testament type. It was a picture of the rest that the promised Messiah was going to bring into the world. The Sabbath rest was a physical rest that was a physical representation of a spiritual rest that the Messiah would bring into our uh, lives, a, 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 a complete uh, rest from striving or working related to salvation and in a relationship with God. And so, uh, Jesus has brought that uh, uh, into our lives. We have, because of our faith in Him, we don't have to wonder, are we saved? Are we good enough to be saved? You know, what do I have to keep doing in order to, uh, you know, to hedge my bet that I'm going to get into heaven one day as a Christian and so forth? The relationship that He has introduced us into is one of rest in our relationship with God and in terms of our salvation. And then now, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to spend my life? And uh, I want to spend it that way. But the Sabbath represented a second thing to the Jews. And this is the most significant thing that God is addressing here with uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. It represented His covenant with them. It represented His relationship with Him. It, it represented the fact that they were a unique people in the world. And in keeping the Sabbath, it was their way to say to God, uh, this relationship that you, that we have with you means something to me. It's important to me uh, to work and to do the six days, but the seventh day is yours. It was a way of saying we value the relationship. And when Judah threw off on top of all of the other laws, and I, I would guess that the final law that they threw off was the Sabbath law. They started disobeying everything else before that. But when they finally threw that off and made it just one more day for self-will and for pleasure and for making money and for idolatry and so forth, they were basically saying to God, now, uh, in the light of our idolatry and our self-will, the relationship means nothing to us. And that's how God took it. And God, in His infinite patience, uh, does not wipe them out, does not wipe us out, but He continues to try and reason with them spiritually to see what it is they're communicating to Him, and even in this kind of latter moment to turn away uh, from this disregard of the Sabbath and what it was communicating about them and to God. And so, uh, the, uh, Jeremiah declares this to them. Their response is recorded in verse 23, but they did not obey nor incline their ear. They didn't give the message in the call at time of day, but they made their necks stiff, and that's like a deliberate rebellion against what was spoken to them, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall be, it shall be if you 
uh, heed me carefully. God continues to speak to them about the blessings that if they would turn, uh, if you'll listen to me and obey me in the Sabbath, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but to hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, sitting, uh, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And so he tells them, listen, just turn. Just start to obey the Sabbath. Just return uh, to the place where my rela- the relationship with me means something. Give me something to work with here uh, on all, all of this, and, and I will uh, you know, if you repent, then I will turn things around, even in this late hour. It's never too late to repent until it's too late to repent. And it's too late to repent once we die or once God kind of uh, lowers His judgment there, though always we can in the judgment, but God is trying to get through to them uh, earlier here. They could still turn, and God said, I'll still bless you, even at this late hour, if you'll turn from your sin uh, and turn to me. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from uh, the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Turn, and I'm going to do a great thing if you'll uh, repent. And then, unfortunately, the story of Jeremiah, verse 27, that first word, but, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour uh, the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be uh, quenched. And so God, again, He gives them uh, the offer. He gives them the warning. They won't take Him up on it, and uh, ultimately uh, the judgment will fall. But again, another incredible example of how patient God is, even with us individually in this room tonight, to call us to turn, to turn, to turn, to turn uh, before, you know, the, the chastening hits or the judgment hits, uh, hits on it. And the patience of God is, I think, sometimes, again, overlooked related to the book. It just looks like it's all judgment. But all of these warnings of judgment are warnings, and the warnings are grace. The fact that they didn't heed it doesn't mean that God wasn't gracious all the way through. So tonight as we close, if there's anything in our heart in terms of our homes, our lives, hypocrisy, or these things, so many things that we've looked at tonight, um, moving away from making a stand for God, whether in our family or at school or at home or whatever it is, it doesn't mean that we uh, can evangelize people around the water cooler on the boss's time. Uh, We're not uh, to do that, but we're not to allow the mocking of, of people or even the mocking in our own head. Uh, to silence us from uh, speaking for the Lord and walking with the Lord and, and uh, uh, expressing our commitment to walk with Him uh, no matter what the world becomes and, and uh, how it treats uh, God's people. So, beautiful chapter. We'll look to uh, pick up chapter 18 next time. Let's stand together and, and we'll pray.